there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. If you were here this morning, you know that in my mind, the title, The Christian Feminist, is a contradiction in terms. The, the two terms are mutually exclusive, as I understand the scriptures, given the definition which feminists give themselves. Some of you may not have been here this morning. The feminist platform is that there are no differences between the sexes other than the biological. I attempted to explain that there are some chronological differences in the creation. There are some ontological differences it's besides the physiological differences, and the physiological differences are visible signs of invisible realities. So I radically oppose the idea that there are no differences between the sexes. Consequently, I can't talk about the Christian feminist when I asked what really was expected. Laura said that they would like me to talk about a Christ the Christian woman. As we were joining in prayer a minute ago and giving thanks to God that his word doesn't change, I was thinking of the hymn that we had just sung, what more can he say than to you he has said? And also the words of that great hymn by Martin Luther came to mind. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. And it's been a great encouragement to me to be here today. I sometimes have the feeling that I, only I, am left, as Elijah felt. I'm aware that I hold very unpopular opinions in most Christian circles, and I'm in a very small minority in Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So it was just a delight to listen to Mrs. Van Halsema and realize that there are other voices speaking the same truths, and I'm very grateful for that. And it's always steadying and comforting to come back to that certain knowledge that it is the Word of God that abides, and so long as we are true to that Word, we need not fear what man can do unto us. And even though my church, the Episcopal Church, capitulated, on the issue of women's ordination, and I feel they made an extremely serious mistake. The church is not mine. God is still in charge of things, and the church has survived probably worse things in its history, so we have to leave it in God's hands. Before I talk this afternoon on the Christian woman, I would like to pull together a few loose ends, which perhaps were not adequately clarified this morning in what I said, and I, I did feel that surely the Holy Spirit was in control in letting the remarks of the two speakers be complementary to each other. 
I felt that Mrs. Van Helsema said almost everything that I had wanted to say and hadn't gotten into my first speech. And it may be that I said some things which left confusion in some minds. I know, I realized someone called to my attention that I had not adequately answered the question about my role as a missionary and a woman. And I would like to just comment on a couple of things that were brought to my attention. As a missionary, I, of course, had a vocation which was independent of my husband's because I went to Ecuador as a missionary single. I was not engaged. I worked in the western jungle with an Indian tribe, and my future husband was at that time working in the eastern jungle. Clear on the other side of the Andes, mail service was extremely poor, and there was we had no commitment to each other at the time. So when I did marry him, I had already been a missionary, and I felt that my call to be a wife took precedence over that. I, this was now my primary calling, but I was still also a missionary, and we do have to sort out our priorities. Uh, when my husband died, I was in a rather indefinable position in view of how I understood the role of women to be in the church. There was a small church of believers, about 50 baptized Quechua Indians on the station where my husband and I had been working together, and of the five American missionaries who were killed at the time my husband was killed, three spoke the Quechua Indian language. They happened to be the only three missionary men in Ecuador who spoke Quechua. All three were killed. So I discovered that one of them had taken a speaking engagement to speak to a conference in Quechua, and the job fell to me. The small church which my husband had been nurturing and teaching was left completely without any teacher at all. Now, we had only one book of the Bible. My husband and I had just finished translating the book of Luke into Quechua. We had about six readers altogether in the church. There were three or four young men whom my husband had been coaching and teaching, as Paul taught the younger men, with the hope that they would become the leaders in the church. And so, although it was not in any sense an ideal situation, I felt that there could be no question that I must teach these believers. So I had what was for me an uncomfortable position of having to teach mixed groups. I still succeeded in maintaining my uh, feeling that I need not speak in Sunday morning church services. I would call one of these young men on a Saturday afternoon to my house, and he would come up, and we would go over a, a short passage of Scripture together and talk about it, and he would come up with a sermon, with my very careful coaching, and then he would get up and preach the sermon. Now, I would not propound this as being necessarily a model that everybody has to follow, but at least, at least it was one way of indicating that I was trying to work myself out of a job, which I ultimately succeeded in doing. I taught the regular midweek Bible study, and I taught a women's study class, and I taught people to read so that they could use the scriptures which we had translated. But there are times when surely there are expedients which nobody would build any doctrines on. It's a cop-out, I think, in this country when women say, well, this is an expedient, we've got to do it because the men have abdicated their responsibility. That is not 
a solution. The more women take this attitude, the more men will allow them to take over spiritual responsibility in church and home, and the less responsibility they take themselves. But this was, my situation was a genuine one, where it was an impossibility that anybody else could have been the teacher, since they didn't have the scriptures and didn't know how to read. So, as in a situation where the wife may have to work to put her husband through seminary, for example, which I'm sure obtains here, as it does in at Gordon-Conwell, I would have no objection to the wife taking this financial responsibility for, as, as long as both of both members of the couple regard it as an expedient which is temporary and toward which they and they would work toward the goal of terminating such an arrangement. But let's be very careful of making any principles out of what are temporary expedients. A question was asked later about a woman's having a secondary position because she was created second. And this person who asked the question felt that the, the word secondary carries a bad connotation. Again, my only answer to that is that this is one of the facts of life. A woman was created after the man, as man was created after the cherubim, the seraphim, the, angel, the archangels, and the angels. Are we supposed to all feel put down because we're not on the same level with the angels and the archangels? Every creature of God has its appointed place in the hierarchy, and we glorify God by the acceptance of that appointment. So far as we know, there are only two orders of being in the universe that have ever taken issue with their creator about the place to which they were assigned. And those two orders of being are angels and human beings. There were angels that the book of Jude speaks of as having rejected their position, and they had to be cast down out of heaven. Adam and Eve decided to become gods which was rebellion against the divine appointment. And that was the fall. That is the sin of hubris, lifting up ourselves against God. And for a woman to refuse the assigned position, be it secondary or whatever, is the same kind of rebellion. Now, in my mind, to have a secondary position does not mean that I am of less value in God's eyes. The clam glorifies God fully by being a clam, not by being Michael the Archangel. I have a little Scotty dog at home who is a continual lesson to me every day because everything that he does is entirely terrier-like. He glorifies God by being a Scottish terrier. And so far as we know, these creatures are sinless, despite appearances. <laughs> so I accept this place. If, if the word secondary carries a pejorative sense, to me it's really quite trivial. But before God, so far as I understand it, we are on an equal footing as far as carrying the image of God, being responsible to him, being moral beings, being the objects of grace, and I accept that. One of the things that I 
I think is most essential that we should grasp in this whole issue is the importance of the making of distinctions. We have been taken for a ride by the secularist viewpoint that there's something reprehensible about the making of distinctions. And there's a move toward erasing of all distinctions. The misinterpretation of Galatians 3.28 is a move in this direction. If we are to erase the distinctions between slaves and masters and Jews and Greeks, then surely we are to erase distinctions between males and females. I submit that the erasing of distinctions is a demonic thing. Demonic. I can't make it less than that, provided we're talking about ontological distinctions, not dif not divisions which are sociological. Obviously, um, slaves and masters, Jews and Greeks, are not ontological distinctions. I trust you understand the difference. They have nothing to do with the nature of being. And we have no indication in Scripture that sex will be discontinued when we get to heaven. Mrs. Van Halsma pointed out so clearly, we must not say what the Bible does not say. We are told what they don't do in heaven. We are never told what they do do. We know that they are like the angels in heaven, and they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But I see no scriptural warrant for believing that sex will be erased any more than for believing that we will become angels when we get to heaven. If sexuality has invisible significance, there is no particular reason to think that it will be erased when we get to heaven. But the creation of the world began with the making of distinctions. God divided the firmament from the heavens, the light from darkness, the earth from the dry land, uh, the dry land from the water, and then in the differentiation of all the orders of creation, it this reached its climax in that most splendid of all earthly distinctions, the sexual distinction, which is one of the terms of our life. And so I believe that the church must take a very strong stand against this erasing of distinctions. How many years did it take for the blacks to understand that their liberation did not lie in becoming white? Finally, they recognized it, and black is beautiful became a slogan. Here we are, right back, full circle again, assuming that the liberation of women lies in becoming like men. Last year, when they had a time cover on Women of the Year, they had 16 different women represented, all of them. Mind you, this is a sad commentary on the ideals which are being held up. All of these women were pictured doing things which men normally do. Now, I refuse to be judged by male standards. I have no more reason to be judged by male standards than pairs have to be judged by the standards of T-bone steaks. There is no basis for such, kind of, such judgment, and it would be a, a distorted standard for me to submit myself to these to the standards of males. I have different gifts, a different nature, a different purpose, a different design, different functions, and I must be faithful 
within that sphere which has been assigned to me. The question was also asked as to whether what we do about women who are competent to be ordained. I'm sure that Mrs. Van Hassema covered this subject. I'm sure that she and I will be saying the same things. You may hear some of the same things four times today, and probably there are things that you need to hear four times and 40 times. But I'd just like to say as simply as, and clearly as I possibly can that my position is not determined by competence. My position in either the church or the home. And this raises the whole question of what it means to submit, which is another question that was asked. What, it, what, do, what do you mean by submitting? It is a question of attitude. And when it comes right down to the wire, where a wife actually has to submit to her husband, or a woman must submit to her minister in the church, the only acid test of her conviction is a case where she does disagree. Submission really doesn't have any meaning if you see eye to eye with the man in question, does it? No problem at all. Submission has meaning when you disagree. And I had a very interesting experience at the time of my daughter's wedding. We were discussing with our priest the music which was going to be used, and we had almost all so-called church music, but I wanted to have the Mendelssohn recessional. Nothing doing, said the priest. We don't have the Mendelssohn recessional in this church. So there followed a very controlled and friendly discussion on the nature of <laughs> religious music. What do we mean by religious music? And of course I pointed out that a great many of what we consider to be the great old hymns of the church are set to barroom tunes, which at one time were simply popular tunes. Handel and Bach used for their own religious purposes tunes which had been dance tunes, drinking tunes, and I felt that I had a good bit of evidence on my side his argument was Mendelssohn is associated with Midsummer Night's Dream, and so we don't use it in this church for weddings. Here we are trying to put on Christian weddings, and you come along with a pagan piece of music. And so we discussed it at some, not very much length, because he knows me very well, and I said, well, you know me well enough to know that I will not make an issue of this since you are my priest. And if I believe in the submission of women, here's a case in point where I submit, and there's no question whatsoever, that this is my responsibility. The issue was not who was right. We could have debated it from here to eternity, and I could have got, I could have adduced a lot of evidence on my side, and he could have gotten it on his side. We could have gotten impartial judges to decide who won the debate. That's utterly irrelevant. And the same thing applies in a marriage where the wife says, I know I'm right, what I'm saying is right for me, it's right for my children, it's even right for my poor husband who is so benighted that he can't see this, and I am going to do this regardless. You don't know what the results of that kind of behavior may be. You do know one thing. God says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. He does not say, submit yourselves to your husbands when they are right. He does not say, submit yourselves to your husbands so long as they are loving you as Christ loved the church. That would obviate 
the necessity of any woman ever having to submit herself to her husband. <laughs> because no man has ever loved his wife as Christ loved the church, nor has any woman ever properly submitted herself to her husband. We are sinners. We leave undone those things which we ought to do. We do those things which we ought not to do. There is no health in us. We are miserable offenders. And we are living in an immoral society. We would never have to submit ourselves to any civil or political authority if it was contingent on righteousness. I obey my governor so long as my governor is right. That's nonsense, and God knew it was nonsense. And so he laid down certain unequivocal laws. If I think my husband is wrong, if I think my priest is wrong, I trust the sovereignty of God to take care of the consequences. I do the one thing I know, submit. Okay, I think I've said everything I wanted to say pull those ends together. Let me emphasize again, I really believe with all my heart that the erasing of distinctions is a demonic thing. The next issue coming up in the church is homosexuality. If we erase sexual distinctions and say that they are purely biological with no spiritual significance, we have no argument left against the practice of homosexuality and the ordination of ministers who have declared themselves to be homosexual. There are no arguments left against it. This is the direction in which we go when we erase distinctions. The church has accepted some of these things by default without examination of what is at stake. I call upon you men to take the leadership, to have the guts to stand up to the screaming women. What man wants to get in to a scene with a screaming woman? Nobody does. Nor do I. I don't like to be on the wrong side of the fence all the time. But this is my responsibility. I'd just like to talk this afternoon a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian woman. Mrs. Van Hossema is going to make it very clear and memorable what a woman's gifts are and how they are to be used specifically in the church. The things that, which I have to say are perhaps a little bit more general and I think fit in very nicely with the things that she's going to say. She was kind enough to show me her outline at lunchtime. <clears throat> Many years ago, I met that marvelous little missionary to China by the name of Gladys Aylward. She had been a London parlor maid, and she went to China as a missionary, and she told many electrifying stories about her experience as a missionary. And she told particularly one that stuck in my mind, six or eight of them stuck in my mind, but the one which bears on what I have to say this afternoon was how she stood when she arrived in Shanghai on the wharf and remembered how, as she said, when I was a girl, I had two great sorrows. One 
that when all my friends were still growing, I stopped. She was about four feet ten, I think. <laughs> and the other, where all my friends had beautiful golden curls, mine was black. She said, I stood on the wharf of Shanghai and I looked around on all the people to whom Jehovah God had sent me. And every single one of them had stopped growing when I did. <laughs> and every single one of them had black hair. And I said, Lord God, you know what you're doing. <laughs> now that was a great lesson to me because I had a great sorrow when I was growing up that when all my friends had stopped, <laughs> I kept going. I was always the tallest person in the class, taller, head and shoulders taller than all the boys when I was in the eighth grade. Always the one that had to erase the top of the blackboard and pull <laughs> down the shades and open the windows and do all the things that none of the boys could do because they were too small. And throughout my life, I had been making excuses for myself about various things, the gifts that God had given me and the things that God had not given to me. And I suddenly realized, a body hast thou prepared for me. As Jesus said, he accepted the limitations which that body imposed on him to be the son of probably very poor peasants, to be a Jew, to live in a nowheresville called Nazareth, to be, so far as we know, just an apprentice to a carpenter, to be nobody, nowhere, for the glory of God. When he came into this world, he said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is, give, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. A Christian woman is a woman who offers herself back to God. These gifts that God has given to me, whether it's light hair, which the Indians that I lived with considered pitiable, looked like palm fibers to them. <laughs> the blue eyes that they thought were just hilarious because they'd never seen blue eyes on any human being, only on jaguars. <laughs> the insipid color of my skin, by comparison with their beautiful, strong, tea-colored skin. The height, which was head and shoulders taller than the tallest man in the tribe. All of these things... I say with Gladys Aylward, Lord God, you know what you're doing. I hear women say, if only I'd been a man. If only I'd had this gift, that gift, this set of circumstances, that set of circumstances. God does not give us an array of options. We have no options at all about the color of our skin, about the particular set of parents that we're stuck with, about being for example, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. My husband used to say, here we are, a much-criticized minority, 
Nobody is dare, nobody dares to stand up and speak out in our behalf. He said, I never asked to join, and I don't know how to get out of it. I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. God doesn't ask you what you'd like to choose of a great many things that are the terms of our existence. It is within the sphere of these gifts that God has given me that I am to glorify him. The clam in his shell, the Scotty dog with his shaggy coat and his pointed ears, the archangel who glorifies God by being not a man, not a seraph, but an archangel. Each of us to join our voices as some of the liturgies say, with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven who continually cry, holy, holy, holy. My voice in this body is to be joined with that company of heaven. So as a woman, I accept what I am. I ask God for grace to change the things that need to be changed, to accept the things that can't be changed, and for the grace to know the difference. I accept my sexuality as a call and a responsibility. The fact that I'm single does not exonerate me from the responsibility of being a woman. I am as responsible to be a woman as any married woman is. I have to respond to other women as a woman to other men as a woman. And I take my cue from that woman who is the example to all of us, Mary. I think in Protestantism, we have sadly lost a, a great deal by rejecting anything to do with Mary. We're scared to death to mention her. And yet Christ is the archetypal man, the second Adam, and Mary is the archetypal woman who, in her total response of self-giving and obedience, is the example for all women for all time. She accepted the terms of her sexuality. I get a feminist magazine which comes out of the Boston Theological Institute, which comprises three or four theological seminaries in our area, and there was a poem a few months ago to Mary commiserating with her for what she had had to do in be being known for all of her life as the mother of somebody. Now to me, that's not only pathetic, that is demonic. That comes straight out of the pit, that frame of mind. And as Christians, we must reject it altogether. We accept the terms of our sexuality. We accept our femininity as meaning the call to receive, to bear, to carry, to nurture, to respond, to be acted upon, and to follow. That great woman of God whose acceptance of all the terms of her life has redounded to the glory of God for millions and millions of people. And one of the questions that I had thought about in advance, I knew that I was going to have about an hour with her, and naturally I wanted to ask a thousand questions, and yet I wanted to hear her talk. 
so I didn't get around to asking more than two or three, but one of the questions that I asked her was, do you ever feel diffident about having to tell the same story about things that happened 30 years ago to you? Do you sometimes feel that you should talk about something else? This is a question, of course, which comes out of my own experience. When I'm asked to speak, very often it's to speak as a missionary to the Alka Indians. Well, I haven't been a missionary since 1963. I was a missionary to Alcas for only two years out of my 11 years as a missionary in Ecuador. And I sometimes have the feeling that people will say, is that all she's got to talk about? Don't tell me we've got to listen to that again. So I wanted to know what Cory Ten Boom's answer to this was. And she said, I know exactly how you feel. She said, sometimes I think to myself, oh, this time I must have something fresh. And the Lord says, that's the story I gave you. You tell that story. And she said, it's very humbling to know that this is the story I'm supposed to tell. Or as Gert Bahana says, my story is the same every time, just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> People sometimes say to me, well, I've never had your experience, and I wish I had your faith, and I've never been through anything like you've been through, and I couldn't agree more. You've never had my experience. You don't have my faith. You haven't been through what I've been through. I don't have your experience. I don't have your faith. I haven't been through what you've been through, because it's in the realm of your experience and that particular set of circumstances which constitutes your life that Almighty God waits to reveal himself. And it is within that sphere that he wants you to operate by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so I accept these gifts. What I am physically, what I am sexually, what I am in every way is part of what I offer back to God. I have nothing to give him but what he's given me. And I can't give it back to him until I've accepted it. When Jesus took into his hands the five loaves and two fishes that the little boy offered him, he couldn't give thanks for it and break it and give it back to the multitude until he had received it and offered it up to God. And so I regard every circumstance of my life as a gift, an opportunity to receive from the giver and to offer back with thanksgiving what I am. I was asked some time ago to speak to a group of seminary wives on the subject of the problems of widowhood. Well, I said I will not speak on the problems of widowhood, first because if it were a problem, what warrant do I have for unloading my problems, which I'm sick of carrying, onto the shoulders of a bunch of young wives who have plenty of problems of their own. In the second place, I don't regard it as a problem. Singleness is not a problem. It's a gift. Now again, we have to remind ourselves God does not give us an array of choices. There are not very many of us single people who would choose that gift. But it is within that sphere 
that God wants to reveal himself. Widowhood is not a problem. I refuse to regard it as such. We have almost a mania in our country and in the church for talking about problems. You get together to do what they call share, and what does sharing end up being but unloading the burdens that you are sick of carrying? There's a verse in scripture in the Psalms that says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. And that word burden, I understand in the Hebrew, means cast what he has given you on the Lord. And this mania for thinking of everything in terms of problems carries with it the corollary assumption that everything has a solution. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are many things in this life that have no solutions, and widowhood is one of them. God has given me two husbands. The fact that he gave me one seemed to me like a miracle. I could never imagine that he would give me a second one. I think the odds against his giving me a third one would be practically astronomical. <laughs> so if I looked upon it as a problem, then obviously the only solution is another husband, and I really don't expect God to do that. But that's neither here nor there. That's within the sovereignty of God. If that's what he wants to do, fine. My responsibility today, on this Saturday, is to glorify God by being a widow. And I accept that as a gift. So I would not speak to those seminary women on the problems of widowhood. Last Sunday night, I spoke to a group of singles on singleness. And I had a hard time getting across to some of them that they ought not to regard their singleness as a problem. In first chapter of James, we have him referring to the trials and temptations that come into our lives, and he says, your response to them is to be the, to welcome them as friends, not to resent them as intruders. There are a great many feminists who deeply and bitterly resent being women. They resent the limitations that are placed on being women. And the only reason they see those limitations as more constricting than the limitations of being a man is because they are socially conditioned to devalue the role of women. We've been taught that somehow it's more laudable to be a professional woman, as that time cover so graphically illustrated. There was not one mother or housekeeper illustrated. There were truck drivers and football coaches. Well, if women, certain types of women, want to be truck drivers and football coaches and plant foremen, that's their privilege and their right, if we want to put it that way in our modern society. But it will depend on how we understand our responsibility to God. So we offer back to God, first of all, what we are. Then we offer to him what we have. And when I was a very small child living here in Philadelphia, we had a great many missionaries visiting us. We were forever going to New York to pick up missionaries off of boats and going to the train station to get missionaries from trains, and it seemed to me that we constantly had suitcases bumping up and down our stairs. And among the many missionaries who came to our home, and I think my mother said she counted up 42 different countries represented in our guest book, we had Betty Scott Stamm, 
who a few years later was beheaded along with her husband by Chinese communists, made a tremendous impression on me when the headlines came out in the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin that this woman who had been in our home had been killed. And a few years after that, when I was a teenager, I found a prayer that Betty Scott Stamm had written, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. There was no way that Betty Scott Stamm could know what that cost was going to be. My first husband, Jim Elliott, had written when he was only 20 these words which I would consider remarkable for a man of any age, especially so for a man who was a junior in college. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he, too, was asked to give the full price. And so I give back to God what I have, my plans, my purposes, my desires and hopes, and I offer him everything else that's in my hands. If I happen to be a widow, that is part of my offering to God. In the church to which I belong, we have a beautiful ritual every Sunday morning. When the offering is presented, it's carried up the aisle in a procession by laymen who also carry the bread and the wine. And the money, the bread, and the wine are placed on the table, and the priest receives them into his hands and offers them up one by one. The money being a symbol of all earthly possessions. The bread and the wine being symbols of the work of our hands. This bread that we have made, this wine. And then there's that marvelous ritual of exchange whereby the priests receiving these gifts as Christ receives us and offering them up in thanksgiving to God, they are transformed for the good of the multitude. I'm not talking about transubstantiation. There is a mysterious transformation that takes place in the offering up. What was it that sanctified the vessels of the tabernacle? It was in their being set apart and consecrated and offered up to God. It was not a different kind of brass, necessarily, that went into the fire pans and the snuffers. It was not necessarily a different carrot of gold. The things might have looked just like any other fire pans and snuffers and shovels, but they were sanctified by being offered up to God. And that's what sanctifies our work. That's what sanctifies the life of a Christian. 
I'm a Christian writer. That doesn't mean that I write about different things than other people write about necessarily. It doesn't mean that I limit myself to a particular kind of subject matter. It means that I'm a writer who is a Christian. And I use these tools, the same 26 letters in the alphabet, the same vocabulary that I can find in Webster's Dictionary, that any other writer uses. Because I'm a Christian, I offer it up to God, and it is thereby sanctified. As a woman, I have peculiar gifts, peculiar abilities, which are not necessarily the same as men. And our next speaker is going to enumerate many of those. I offered up to God my husband. My first husband, of course, was killed suddenly, and I could have either gone through life rebelling against God's action, or I can accept that and say, Lord, you know what you're doing. In the case of my second husband, I had to watch him disintegrate day by day through cancer. And in that experience, I came to an appreciation of what this business of gifts is about. He had given me this marvelous man, this miracle that I was sure could never happen, for a limited period. And it was not just for my sake. All the gifts of God are for the sake of other people. And of course, the question in my mind was, Lord, how can this gift be for the sake of other people? I thought you gave him to me. And he said, that's none of your business. Let me take care of that. Offer him back to me. And so through those months of having to share in his suffering and realizing that there were times when I had absolutely nothing in my hands, it seemed, except a broken heart, it came to me so simply and so clearly, if it's a broken heart you have, that's what you offer. And I thought of that prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And I thought, Lord, I can't imagine any way in which you can transform this hideous suffering for the good of a multitude. And yet, I have to commit that into the sovereignty of God. When we as women feel limited, constricted, unappreciated, have we got the grace to offer back to God all that we are and have? Whether we like the particular set of gifts that God has given us and think that they are appropriate to the job that we have to do or not, that is God's business. There is a central principle at operation in operation in Christianity, and that is my life for yours. It's the principle of the cross. It's the principle of sacramentalism. Every physical thing has spiritual significance. Every earthly thing is transformed into something heavenly. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he said, my life for the life of the world. The marvel is I am crucified with Christ, 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So whether I'm a man or a woman, tall or short, fat or thin, smart or stupid, it's this life that Paul says, I beseech you that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This offering that I can make, nobody else can make. I can either say, my will be done, or I can say, thy will be done. I'd like to read in closing a passage from Isaiah 58, which to me is the remedy for frustration, for loneliness, for depression, for confusion. It's almost a panacea. The last 14 verses or so, I won't read them all, but when I think, when I talk to women who find themselves in what seems to them impossible situations, lonely and oppressed and distressed and confused and trying to find themselves, not knowing what they're supposed to do next, I take them to this passage, and here is that spiritual principle of exchange, my life for yours, beautifully delineated. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire with good things and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. I'd like to leave with you this principle. Many of the things that we've said today will have raised questions in your minds. Certainly not all the questions can possibly have been answered. Some of you go out of here perhaps more confused than you came in. Here's a principle that you can bank on. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, in other words, if you lay down your life, then this mysterious principle goes into operation. The Lord will guide you continually and will satisfy your desire. Any other questions? My husband would say, if there aren't any questions, it means you didn't understand the lecture. I'll give it again. <laughs> Gentlemen, back here. Would be highly suspicious. This question always comes up, and it's always hypothetical. And fortunately, I, I have never had to face it myself, but I have seen one or two incidents just recently in young women who were very new Christians and were earnestly desirous of putting the principle of submission into practice in their own marriages, and they were both married to non-Christians. And this question has been bandied about very much in a Bible class that I teach because it was mostly either non-Christian women or young, very young Christians all of whom had non-Christian husbands. So the question was a, was a very real one to them. And I've, I've seen two incidents recently where these women in 
earnest and honest sincerity to submit, regardless of what their husbands might ask them to do, have done so, and God has really worked what looked to them like a miracle as a result. Their husbands were disarmed by this unwanted submission on the part of their wives. Both wives were very strong-minded people who had never submitted without an argument, at least, before. And suddenly to find themselves confronted with this docile wife that was, seemed to be totally out of character brought the husbands up short and, and made them recognize that here was something fresh to deal with that they didn't know. So it was a marvelous illustration to me that you can trust God for the results. Even in scripture, there were very few incidents where men had to obey God rather than men. Scripture says, submit yourselves to every authority as unto the Lord. So if it, as long as it's a hypothetical case, we don't need to come up with an answer. And when the case is actually yours, then I think God will give you the answer. Again, we have to go back to what we do know rather than what we don't know. And submission is, a, is clear. Yes? Do you think that in the courtship part of life that there's a stand you should take on different moral questions? Or should you wait until marriage and then the girl decides to submit? I can't imagine what moral questions you'd be referring to in a courtship period unless it re refers to the relationship between the two of them. Obviously, if it's a question of the moral relationship between the man and the woman, each individual is responsible before God, and the woman, I believe, holds the key to every situation when it comes to a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So it's hard to make any kind of statements about courtship because I think it's a highly artificial phenomenon in our society. Most people in most places throughout most of history have not had the kind of dating and courtship that we have. So I'd be the last to say that we have clear guidelines as to how this is to operate, but the question was asked after the last meeting, and I said to one girl that if she's dating a man with the idea that this courtship will or may lead to marriage, then she would start, I would think, to put into practice the principles that she understands to be applicable, and her attitude would certainly be affected. I can't say that a girl who's dating a man has to obey him in the sense that a wife has to obey her husband, certainly. Yes? Um, we know that there are quite a few uh, women on the mission field. And um, not to belabor it, but to go back to the point that you made at the very beginning when you were pulling the strings together, uh, you did seem to imply that expedience allowed a violation of principle. And you did seem to imply that an end would justify a mean. And I'm just wondering if you could, uh, uh, if you would say that, that at least in an extreme case, we could violate a principle. I don't want to make a principle of violating a principle. And there are always many hypothetical cases for which we cannot make rules. We cannot say what Scripture does not say. It it seemed clear to me when I was in that highly unusual situation that I did the right thing. There are far more serious cases which people have had to face, matters of life and death, where 
until we've been in that situation, we cannot judge. I, I'm certainly the last to, set, to make a principle out of saying the end justifies the means. That's Jesuitical casuistry. But think of a person like Corey Ten Boom. Their family, in order to hide Jews, had to practice various forms of subterfuge and deceit and lying. Bonhoeffer, in order to join in a plot to assassinate Hitler, had to cut himself off from the fellowship of the church. I've never been in that position. I have no way of knowing whether Bonhoeffer was right or wrong. As far as he was concerned, this was a case where he had to kill in order to accomplish another end, which he felt was more important. Yes? I certainly have. The question is, what do I think of a couple who are marrying and the wife does not want to take her husband's name? I would say that that wife hasn't got the faintest notion what marriage is all about. <laughs> not the faintest. To be a help suitable for my husband implies that I lay down my life for him. Now, Paul laid on the man the highest responsibility of all when he said, husbands, lay down your lo love your wives as Christ loved the church, because this means laying down your life for your wife. But there is a sense in which I not only am willing to lose my identity in order to be the wife of this man, I am delighted to lose my identity. It bothers me very deeply for people to address me as Mrs. Elizabeth Leach, which people very often do in ignorance. It's not etiquette, but to me it's much more significant than that. The only person that you would properly address as Mrs. Elizabeth Leach would be somebody who's divorced because she wants to forget her husband's identity. I am, should be properly addressed Mrs. Addison Leach, and this is a great delight to me. And when I would go with my husband, I wanted to be known as his, as his wife. And I didn't care if anybody ever knew me as anything but his wife. Now, I think I have a right to speak on this point because I had a name, quote and unquote, before I married him, which I might have wanted to perpetuate. To me, to marry that man was worth any price if it meant the absolute loss of all my identity, forgetting my career, forgetting everything I'd ever done before, that is what marriage is about, as far as I'm concerned. A woman was made for the man. And I can't possibly extol highly enough what I see to be the greatest joy, the greatest glory of any woman, and that is to be the wife of a man, to be a wife and a mother. In human terms, those are the greatest imaginable earthly good. So when a woman is unwilling to accept her husband's identity, I would seriously question her understanding of what it means to be a wife. I would say the same thing to a woman who wants to, who wants to know whether she can have a career and be married. I would say if you can weigh the two, career and marriage, and decide that marriage is the more important of the two, then possibly you can manage both. If you want them to be on an equal basis, or if your career is more important to you than marriage, you have no business getting married. Yes? A Christian couple considering the 
Probably as a wife of a missionary, unless she felt a very strong call to be a missionary. And this is certainly common, I think, that women who believe that God is calling them to be missionaries marry men who are going to be missionaries. That's fine. I still think that her priority would be to be first his wife, and that was the way I understood my task, even though I had been a missionary before. When I became Jim Elliott's wife on the mission field, my primary responsibility was to him as my husband. I continued to do missionary work. We translated the Bible together. We worked in the church together. We did, we did everything together. But I was, first of all, a wife, and then a mother, and then a missionary. Miss Lady? I'm not trying to belabor the point, but will you tell us again why you don't attend faculty meetings? Because I'm not invited. <laughs> no, and the only, I want to make it clear that the, the fact that I'm not invited has nothing to do with my being a woman. I'm an adjunct faculty member, and they don't go to faculty meetings. I don't think a woman can find any place in society other than in the church. In the secular society, she cannot find a place. And I was just saying to some, some of the women at lunch that I was most deeply distressed by the decision of the Episcopal Church because since I have no man to whom to submit at home, the only place in which I return to reality and am fully a woman is in church. And if I am to be subject to a woman priest, I have nowhere to go. I'm deprived of my full humanity. I think for a Christian woman, the two places in which inequalities are accepted and appreciated and given thanks for are in church and home. If she doesn't have a home in the sense of having a husband, then she just has one place, and that's in the church. This is where we find our identity. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.